When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, this is David Feingold, the president of Chatham University and your host for the Future of Higher Education podcast on the New Books Network. I'm delighted to be here today with John Katzman, one of the most innovative thinkers and doers in the world of education, who's created three separate successful educational startups um, and is, is someone who I always love to talk to for new ideas on education. John, great to have you on the show. It's so great to be here, David. Uh, We're going to try something a little bit different today at John's suggestion. So in addition to just giving a kind of quick overview of of some of the successes in his career and his background, we're actually going to focus on three really pivotal issues in the world of higher education today. First, looking at the challenges facing many small private institutions as they cope with the demographic decline and other competitive challenges that are ahead in the coming decade. Second, looking at the whole question of college affordability and and how colleges actually price, which is very different than most sectors of the economy. And then finally, uh, a passion area of John's looking at the whole college admissions process. He'll talk about some of the work he's doing uh, with setting up a new foundation to try to improve this area. But before we get into those topics, I wanted to start by, John, just having you introduce yourself a little bit. Tell us about where you grew up, where you went to school. Sure. I uh, grew up in New York City and uh, went to a small private high school, uh, Birchwathen, um, which uh, whose claim to fame these days is that the building that they sold when they merged with another school became the uh, the townhouse um, for Jeffrey Epstein. Oh, great! <laughs> so, <laughs> so, yeah, uh, just weird to see it in the news. Um, oh. The, uh, the, then I went to Princeton University, majored in architecture. I sort of started as an engineer and then kind of briefly went through a whole bunch of areas, uh, uh, focused on urban planning and uh, studying with Chester Rapkin, who was a former head of the New York City Planning Commission and sort of just excellent uh, guy. Great. And uh, when I graduated, I, I, I started 
I had done some tutoring through college uh, on the SAT. And, and when I graduated, I started the Princeton Review um, with a thought that I could do it for a couple of years and uh, use the proceeds to start a software company. Um, Princeton Review kind of took off and I kind of went with it. Um, had a three-year rolling plan to sell it for 20 odd years. And uh, finally, I, t- I took it public and left to create a company now called To You um, with a thought experiment of um, that higher ed online had a terrible reputation, but only because the schools doing it were terrible. Um, what would happen if really good schools built programs that were intended to be excellent um, and over-invested in learning design and, and in uh, technology and in support for students. Um, same admission standards, same uh, intent, and in the end, same results. Uh, and to you did uh, well. I uh, left just before taking it public, uh, now having realized that that isn't all the fun it's cracked up to be. Uh, and um, started a series of companies. So both of those actually ended up as pretty good sized public companies. Um, started a studio called the Noodle Companies. And the idea was to create a series of companies, each of which attacked a little piece of, of what I see as one of the big problems in education across the spectrum, which is um, it's very hard to measure education. It's very hard, uh, therefore, to, to do all the things marketplaces are good at you know, to compete, to choose the right thing for your students and, and for your schools and, and, uh, and your, your kids. Um, and if we could help create transparency, that that would be a, a, a big deal. Um, it turns out that startups are hard, that, that hiring people to run startups is hard. And, um, and in the end, the, the company that has done uh, well is the, is the, part that I, I ran myself um, and was able to bring in a, a bunch of terrific people, uh, which is now called Noodle and has a mission. Well, we can talk about the mission, but uh, is now working with uh, almost 30 great colleges and universities to, to use technology to transform uh, their capacity, their resilience, and, and, and their cost structure. That's a wonderful quick summary of, of, of a lot of years of entrepreneurial success there. Uh, I think many of us, um, you know, ha- had a chance to do a little bit of SAT tutoring, um, you know, when we were in high school or college in, in helping folks. Uh, not many thought to, to take that and turn it into a successful business, nor had the, the resources and skills to do that coming right out of college. How did you go about, you know, turning a, a, a sort of tutoring you were doing into something that grew to become a public company? It was the opposite of what I would do today. Um, <laughs> we, you know, I borrowed uh, $3,000 and, uh, and just kept reinvesting. Um, but, you know, it took, it took 20 years to get public, uh, you know, cause there, there weren't really VCs back then, uh, of note. And, uh, and it wasn't the kind of thing you can borrow money for. It's just, so you just grew it that way. And, you know, education also just 
kind of moves slowly in addition. So you, for test prep, you have a fall term and a spring term. And, and no matter how well you do, no matter how good your reputation, there's only so fast you could go. But we we grew nicely and it was it was a great, fun business. There were over 100 marriages huh. within the Prince Review uh, community. There were... Uh, uh, we we explored different media. We were one of the first hundred dot com websites, um, and uh, had offices pretty much around the world. It was it was interesting. Well, I'm pleased to say one of our claims to fame still at Chatham is every year we feature in the in the Princeton Review Cool Schools for being one of the most sustainable campuses. So the legacy li- lives on there. Um, so so. I'd love to go in in more depth in those areas, but I really want to leave time for the, these these crucial issues you've identified. So let's talk first about you know what what smaller private colleges and it's not confined to them. Obviously, lots of public institutions, as we've seen in Pennsylvania, have also been struggling. But how do you see sort of the competitive environment unfolding over the next decade, and what are its implications for leaders in higher ed? Well, Phil Hill pointed out something that I think is pretty important that, you know, if you look at uh, two-year schools, they've really struggled over the past couple of years. And the for-profits, for all kinds of good reasons, have uh, struggled as well. When you look at four-year schools, overall, the trends have been up. But he said exclude Southern New Hampshire, Western Governors, and... Uh, ASU. No, Liberty. He did not oh, exclude ASU. Right. Yeah. Uh, and Liberty... And all of a sudden, you see that it's been flat and and a little bit down uh, enrollment at four-year schools. So now we've got the birth dearth coming up, but um, we're not starting from a position of strength. You know, so overall college going has been down. I don't know a decade, pretty much every year, and uh, and four-year schools have have when you exclude those guys been flat. Where's it going to go? And the answer is, it's probably going to go down. And the schools that are most at risk are the smaller schools and the ones without state subsidy. Um, although a lot of regional state schools uh, uh, in Pennsylvania, you know, I think uh, the Pashi schools are, are, are struggling and consolidating. So when I look at that, it strikes me that there are the schools that will thrive during that time are the ones that a get their costs under control, b um, get their brands under control, and to do that is about capacity, using online to raise capacity without building buildings, right? And there are a whole bunch of ways to do that, uh, both with technology and not. B, um, streamlining administration. And if, if you think about things like every school crafts its own tech infrastructure, despite the fact that we're all kind of doing the same thing, and despite the fact that there are 4,000 pretty terrible tech infrastructures, if you look around, like, you know, if you measure the quality of the tech infrastructure at an average college or university, at not an average, at almost all of them, versus what companies of similar size are using. It's, it's, it's not in the game. Um, and, um, I mean, most of your students doing a lot, a lot of their studying at night 
you know, what are the support hours? Every part of it is just, is just ramshackle. Um, and, and so I think there are, there are ways to uh, lower those costs. And then finally is collaboration at scale. Universities and colleges are used to floating on their own bottoms, each one a little island. And uh, when they collaborate, they do it in little twee ways that are lovely, but they're not game-changing. Um, there are opportunities to dramatically improve services and lower costs while continuing to differentiate and, in fact, enhancing that differentiation. Um, you don't have to become a mixed school in order to collaborate. Yep. No, I, I couldn't agree more, but, but it's been interesting. I've had a chance on the podcast to interview a lot of the leaders who have done significant strategic partnerships or, or, or mergers or alliances of different kinds. Um, but, you know, the, the kind of conclusion I've come to in looking at that in higher ed is, you know, if you compare it with almost any other sector of the economy, when they're dealing with excess capacity and, and a shrinking customer base, right, consolidation, partnerships, those types of things is, is we've seen it in healthcare, we've seen, you know, a, across all different sectors, manufacturing of the economy. And yet in higher ed, it's it's been very rare. And and I guess my central conclusion is you you your best time to do it is when you're really healthy because you can only do good deals and you you know you have the ability to craft something where it's not in a crisis situation. But when you're healthy is the hardest time to do it because it's counter cultural. Right. Why, yep. why, 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 why give up any autonomy? Why, why deal with something like that if we don't have to? And There's so, this I, magic moment yeah. that a great leader knows that the falls are ahead, but can still turn the ship because they're not right on them. Yep. Yep. But, but getting boards and getting leadership teams, how, how do you think it, are, are the are the warning signs out there? You know, had Nathan Graw on the podcast. You know, everybody is aware of his book and the trends that are coming. But but it seems to have been slow to to seize that type of strategy to make that move. I think what um, what people have been missing traditionally, if you were going to merge, and by the way, there are a lot of ways to collaborate that are not right. merger. Sure. Um, impactful ways. But if you were going to merge back in the day, or if you were going to collaborate, you would do it with schools that are geographically close. Except those are the schools that you compete with. Those are the schools that you have differentiated from. In 2022, I think the right answer is to find schools around the country that share a philosophy, that share an overall uh, profile, um, you're a Jesuit school, they're a Jesuit school. You're a, uh, uh, a school focusing on active learning and, and dealing with students, you know, or, or, or subject matter. You're mostly business kind of related or nursing. Um, to find schools that are of like mind elsewhere and create either a network or a single school with multiple campuses around the country. And in doing so, you give yourself some critical mass. You give yourself the ability to market nationally, which is a big deal because uh, micro-targeting is expensive. And 
And finally, you give a chance to create online and hybrid stuff that, you know, a student could be studying online, but um, can spend time on campus. And at this point, the vast majority of people who study online do so within 50 miles of campus. By having campuses around the country, you can address that interest and that desire, uh, even with your online efforts. And so I think I think um, the reason that consolidation or collaboration has been slow is people are just looking at the wrong schools to collaborate or merge with. Yeah, no, makes makes a ton of sense. And obviously, there, there. In addition to these competitive pressures, this sort of COVID moment where everybody's had to do much of what they do virtually for a significant period, hopefully, out, opens an opportunity for people to to be thinking differently. Let, let, let's go to the second topic on, on pricing and affordability. I know you have some, some strong views on, on, on colleges and how they go about this and how it might be rethought. So I think about 75% of people who visit your website and look at how expensive your tuition is, stop there. Especially less advantaged students, the price of college is a, is a gut check moment. The fact is, though, that the way colleges price is ridiculous and it has nothing to do with what anyone else in any other sector is doing. Like everyone on, on a, on a, on an airplane is paying a different price for their seat, but American advertises their least expensive seat, right? It's not, let's just talk about the price of a first class ticket. Let's take it down to, to, and then say, well, you don't have to, you know, sit up here, you could sit back here, you could sit in the middle seat, you could do this. Um, Back in the day, electronics had uh, this notion of manufacturers suggested retail price. It was super high prices, but then everybody was discounting by about half. And that was abandoned because it didn't work. And yet universities still do the same thing. And the key is not to lower your stated tuition because it signals weakness. And there's all sorts of data on that. But just not to talk about sticker price. The real issue is, A, here's what our average student pays. Let's just start there. And then B, think about all the math you do to figure out how much financial aid you're giving somebody, either merit-based or need-based or yield-based, right? There are all sorts of companies thinking about, if I give this extra $1,000 to this student, it'll matter, and that student, it won't. And, and, and so it's, it's trickier than simply uh, uh, need and merit. But all of it is basically algorithmic, right? You're not making it up every time. You're not just like pulling it out of your uh, wherever. You're, you're, you've come up with a theory, What if you move it in front of the application? What if instead of an estimator, the website just says, here's what our average student pays. And if you want to know what you'll pay, fill out this information. It'll take you 10 minutes and we'll tell you. And if you apply in the next month, then we'll commit. And if it turns out that what you said is true, um, then that's your tuition, period. And could we make... um, the process of figuring out how to pay for college, as simple as 
the process of figuring out how to, how to pay for anything else in the world. Uh, so you would marry that then to, okay, now we know the number and it's a lot less than you thought, especially if you're less advantaged. Now let's talk about how you're going to pay for it. And instead of, and, and again, just, just have somebody who doesn't do higher ed for a living sit with you and go to your website and say, okay, tell me how much does this cost? How much are you likely to pay? And how are you going to pay for it? And two hours later, they're going to look at you with big eyes and say, I have no idea. That doesn't have to be like that. So it's not just, let's talk about our net tuition. It's not just, let's create the algorithm and put it in front of the uh, reg wall or the, or the application. But it's also, let's show people how to pay for it in English. Yep. Can, can I ask your view on one of the things that's grown significantly just in the last few years to that point about how do you pay for it? And I think not just how you pay, but also the risk factor that's in people's minds when they hear about student loans yeah. is this notion of, of the ISA. Um, yeah. Uh, so I'm, I'm just curious in, in what you think about them. We've looked hard at income sharing agreements and we collaborate with, among others, uh, Stride. Um, it's early days and there were some really bad actors. And again, every new medium starts with porn, right? Like the, a new thing, the sketchiest folks in the room come in first. But especially with the work Elizabeth Warren is doing and this administration of just like, let's create some clarity here. Let's create some, some guardrails around uh, predatory practices. Um, let's think of this as that because it is, I think it's a really promising way to look at the world. Um, this is what I'll pay if I have a problem and I'm not making any money, then I pay nothing. And, and the cap and this is going to sound high, but if the cap is twice tuition that you're going to pay over time, you've got to compare that to if you take on debt, it's one and a half times tuition because of interest. So yes, people with ISAs who, whose careers take off are going to pay a little bit more, but that's the cost of, of, of creating a real safety net for uh, for everybody. And I, I think it's a, it's a perfectly workable strategy. The, the question in the long term is, is the right answer, you know, because all of the uh, debt instruments have, uh, and the ISAs have tremendous uh, friction. If the IRS just said, okay, yeah. we're the collector, you know, this is just put on your taxes. It's deducted as part of everything. It, when you go to college, well, and you that's actually, you know, what, what I did after grad school. So I, I studied the Australian system, which does this, and then was part of the reforms in England that adopted a similar system. And to me, it, it I love the clarity of it, where you're able to say to everyone going to college, you don't have to pay anything out of pocket. And only when you come out and you're earning more than you would have if you didn't have a college degree, are you going to pay it back? Right. And, and the frictional costs, since you're collecting it anyways, zero, right. Yeah, and, yeah. and 
and and again, that's, those frictional costs are insanely high right now. Yep. So I like ISAs as a concept. I I think we're still working out the kinks, and there's they'll get steadily more efficient and steadily more transparent over time. You know, one of the big well, the two questions that remain: one, when things are free, people there are some bad things that creep in. Right, bad schools that shouldn't exist that take advantage, and uh, and students who are not well counseled, um, and take on too much debt or take on uh, silly debt. I mean, switching majors costs you about a semester of credits uh, on average, and switching schools costs you a year of credit uh, hours. Well, you know, what does that mean in dollars? A lot, and. No one's sitting there with the student, helping them figure out what school can you go to that really is, uh, uh, especially students whose parents who don't have big trust funds. Uh, what schools can you go to that that are economically that make sense? What majors make sense? And once you picked a path, if you really feel you have to switch paths, how do we do so in a way that uh, that minimizes? Uh, Financial the added costs. Yeah, and on the the ISAs, there there's another sort of, I, I think similar function, but somewhat competing product in the market that's looking at a more of an insurance program, uh, LRAP, where basically the the college provides it, and it says to the graduates, you know, um, if you're earning under X dollars amount, this will help repay. A portion or all of your student loan payments. Do you see that as advantage, disadvantage versus the the income share agreement? All of this comes down to psychology and um, what are the reasons people hesitate to go to college? Um, is it that they don't see the upside, or is it they're that they're afraid of the downside? And I don't, I haven't seen enough studies of the people who are qualified to go to college who don't and what things would change their minds. Um, The fact is that it's such a good return on investment now. And if you exclude the for profits, it's even better. Um, That I'm, I'm, the, the costs of protecting people from the downside may be higher than they need to be. May, may, we might be um, solving the problem that doesn't really exist at a cost to everybody and at a cost of complexity. So, so it's interesting, but I, I don't have enough data yet. Yeah. Great. So, so let's move on to the, the third issue that, that you wanted to discuss on, on the admissions process. I understand you're, you're in the process of, of setting up a foundation to look at this. What's the, what's the sort of problem statement and how are you thinking about addressing? It's not a foundation. It's an operating uh, uh, entity. And, uh, and I am helping and I've, I've helped pull together a bunch of, of, of really terrific people Um from different sectors of higher ed to say, look, you know, the, the, the college admissions process is, is hateful. It's a truly terrible process on almost every front. If you're a highly selective school, you're dealing with um, a flood of applications. You have three minutes to process one at this point. Um, 
which sounds terrific and makes you very happy in terms of, you know, you can brag about it, but um, you have less and less data to go on because you've already discredited the SAT and ACT. You've gotten rid of interviews and uh, the essays are written by somebody's parents. The uh, GPAs are all over the place in terms of grade inflation. Like, so you're, you're pretty much throwing darts as you try to build your class. If you're everybody but the elite schools, you're struggling to, to fill your class and to fill your budget and, and holding your breath on May 1, you know, is, is do we have a huge problem here and what's yield going to be? If you're uh, a disadvantaged student, the whole process is opaque and baffling. And if you're an, you know, if you're a high achieving advantage student, um, you're stressed out beyond all comprehension and you're uh, uh, committing suicide at, you know, at, at, at kind of spiky rates. And I think the admissions process is part of what is driving uh, stress levels and, and, and some real dysfunctions in what goes on in high schools. So everything about this process is bad. And the question is, if we started with a clean sheet of paper, could we do better? And if we could do better, how do we get from here to there? And what are the early ideas on what that could look like? So uh, it looks like a competitor to Common App and and a whole bunch of other uh, things that are out there that create a welcoming, smart, simple front door to post-secondary education. So let's talk about uh, the beginning of it is let's step you through the FAFSA in really simple ways. And maybe the FAFSA plus, uh, because some schools want a little bit more information, but right at the beginning of the process, let's make sure everybody has done that. And with counseling, if necessary, get that data so that we can say, Hey, this whole process is free. There are no application fees from any schools. There's no fees for taking any tests. You don't have to apply for waivers. It's just like, here's, here's what's going on uh, uh, financially. And now we have that data, which is a barrier to a lot of people. And we can encourage schools to use that data again to, uh, to be much more clear about what they're going to cost uh, to that student. Um, we can schedule an interview instead of every school scheduling alumni interviews and trying to figure it out. And they can still do that, of course. Um, we know a little bit about you. We know that you're really interested in ballet. Great. So we schedule an interview. It's a half hour Zoom session and it's recorded and transcripted. And every school you apply to has the opportunity to see you and to, you know, a, a transcript of a half hour interview might be a five minute read um, to quickly kind of see who you are. Um, we schedule a writing sample. So at any time, you can schedule at any time. There are thousands of prompts up on the site. When you get on, you're going to take one. It's going to be digitally proctored and schools can see actual writing by you without help of your parents or your tutor or anybody else. Um, we look at GPA and translate your transcript into a projected GPA at every school you apply to in the humanities and in the sciences based on years and you know decades of longitudinal data 
around schools like yours and around colleges like this, but you can put some real data science to these problems and actually get some, you know, some, it's, it's kind of what colleges are trying to do with that data, but we can really make it happen. Ditto on tests. We can take SAT or ACT or AP or Regents or IB or whatever tests you took and translate it into a projected GPA, humanities and math and science. So you just go down the list and every part of this process, if you said, how would we make this great? There's an answer better than what we're doing right now. And then the final part is the process would be rolling. You apply anytime after October 1, you will hear from the school within a month and that acceptance is good for a month. So you apply to a couple schools in October, you hear by the end of October and you have the month of November to figure out which one you're going to go to and you're done. And if you got rejected from all of them, you apply to another bunch of schools in November and another bunch of schools in December. And there's no reason to apply to 15 or 20 schools. You're not playing the lottery. You're not creating a huge portfolio. You're applying to the schools you want to go to, knowing that I can keep my blood pressure down because if, if this doesn't work, I'll apply to two or three more next month and I'll apply to two or three more the month after. And likewise, the schools are seeing their class evolve as we roll through the process and as uh, they are filling once you accept at a school, once you, once you deposit, the process is closed. So you're replacing the kind of weirdness of early decision and early decision two and kind of stealth ED3 um, and this thicket of rules around EA and ED and, and everything else with a simple rolling process that fills the seats and that, and that, um, that ensures that no kid is going to be you know, accepted nowhere. It sounds really fascinating. So, so what types of of people are you working on to to build this? Who have you got buy in from? So, um, the first step was was finding the people who want to do this, and uh, um, we're not out public yet, and so I can't say a bunch of names. But it's a, a a really interesting group of people from both the public sector, working with state university systems. Um, the private sector, a head of enrollment planning at, at some great prestigious universities and knowing that side of the offense and education tech entrepreneurs who have built billions of dollars of value, um, you know, who can think this through from a, uh, a financial and, and operational point of view. Um, this is a nonprofit, but it, it should end up paying for itself at uh, uh, not requiring huge infusions of capital all the time um, because it would take, you know, 10% of application fees um, as common app does. Um, so it's, uh, you know, it's a, we're thinking of it as a, as a standalone nonprofit as self-sustaining. That's right. Now, but I thought you had mentioned, not having application fees. So, so uh, is that an, not having an upfront one or ha- how are you thinking about that? No, schools could have application fees as they do now. They could waive them if they want to. And uh, um, I'm, I think the savings here are number one, since we're not requiring any one standardized test, that they all just translate into scores, that you're taking fewer of those, you're 
Um, you don't need as much admissions counseling, whether you're rich or poor. Um, you For disadvantaged kids, they can focus not on the explaining and navigating you through the process. The process is simple. They can focus you on, well, what do you want to study and where are your weaknesses and, and, uh, and exactly how are we going to pay for this? And for advantaged kids, you know, it just takes down all of the pressure. Another way of taking down the pressure, by the way, when we're projecting GPA, we cut off at 3.7. So the people who are like killing for that last 0.1 GPA for that last 10 points on the SAT, like can understand that actually schools won't even see it. Like you, you, you're fine. You're good. And you, you can stop now and do something else with your weekend. Um, so I think, I think the savings are across the board. You, you don't have to apply to 15 schools and pay 15 application fees, pay, apply to three schools. And if you get in, you're done and then apply to the next three, uh, if you need to. I, I'm curious, the, you, as you, you alluded to, there's been so much focus, um, now, particularly among the more selectives on early decision one, two, early action, all, all of that, I would most of what you're describing seems to me like things that people in, in in any institution would embrace because it streamlines and it makes it more equitable. It, it gives them good data; they they don't have to gather themselves. But 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 the idea of moving to purely rolling where everyone's in the same boat, I could see as being very threatening to a number of those institutions that have really built their models around that. So uh, do you have a sense of buy-in from them to make the system? Well, this is the key. And the schools we're talking to, you know, are both state systems and elites um, as if we have them, we can go after everybody else. But I think some schools are going to wait to see what the elites do and, and, uh, and a state system gives us a critical mass, at least in one area, one region that you can build on. Um, you know, though we, we'd love to launch with everybody, um, and we certainly won't close the doors to anybody. The, the hope is to run this in parallel, to say, look, we'll fill some of our seats with this, but we'll keep our regular process going too, because maybe this is going to be uh, years before it has uh, students really embracing it. What I think will happen is that the schools who adopt this in parallel, that the students will love it and will see, boy, this is a, this is a way that I can shortcut this whole process. I can be in by October and be done with this process. This is, this is less expensive. It's easier. Yes. And they'll pull applications from competitive schools uh, they'll pull really good students, fill their seats early, and and you know to some degree, you want to build a system that's better for everybody, that is a social good, but at the same time, that is particularly better for the people who adopted early, and uh, and and set up you know incentives that um, uh, that the early adopters have a self interest in 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 driving this. Uh, I, I really love the model. What, what's the timeline like for what, what you're hoping to do in terms of launch? We're out raising money right now. 
and uh, look like we'll have planning grants uh, in place this quarter. And at that point, we'll announce publicly um, and, uh, and start building, you know, and it's, it's, there's a substantial amount of tech and data science that goes into this. Um, but, uh, but to some degree, we don't have to be faster than the bear. Like the, the, most schools, the data science they're doing to actually think about who is going to thrive at the school and, and who's not, you know, is, is, is pretty rudimentary. We're just giving them better data. We're not making decisions for them, but, but things like saying, you know, you've got your little chart of SAT versus ACT. Wouldn't it be better just whatever tests they took? Here's, here's the projected GPA, like do what you want with it. But, um, here's a piece of data that's good and that is more reliable, more accurate than, uh, than what you're doing right now. So John, hearing, hearing you describe the model you're thinking of to solve this issue, it, 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 it brings up memories for me. So one of the opportunities we had to work together was with quad learning and American honors. And, uh, when I look back on my career, I think of that as one of my, my big regrets because we, uh, you know, we built a model. I was the chief academic officer there that showed we could take a lot of first generation, high performing students, build strong honors programs in community colleges, and then have them be able to transfer to some of the best public and private colleges and universities in the country and do well. And so, you know, built the first national transfer network, felt like we had, uh, something that was solving a really important information problem in the in the system that you're trying to tackle in several different ways but because it was set up as a venture backed startup the, the problem i think the core was community colleges are very price sensitive this wasn't a model where it was easy to get a high return but it could have been i think a self-sustaining nonprofit or a B Corp, right? That was about delivering the, the model, but doing it in a way. And I, I'm curious, you, you've been part of many very successful startups. As you look back on that and you think about the new one you're building, what, what kind of lessons do you, do you draw from that? Well, I have a lot of scars on my back. That's certainly one of them of, of, of things that didn't work. Um, in, in, One of the lessons that I that I've had in working with K twelve school districts, and I believe community colleges share many of the problems of those school districts, is they have a geographic moat around them that that shields them from a lot of the forces that four year colleges have been dealing with for hundreds of years, and they're exceptionally uh, inertial. You know, you think. Higher ed moves slowly, um, but the pandemic was a perfect example of higher ed very, very quickly. In fact, before most companies, people were sending students home. The entire sector turned on a dime in a week. On a dime, on a yeah. dime. And you muddled through the last two years with one crazy thing after another being thrown at you. Um, and higher ed is is now 
shifting its gaze to okay now how do we how do we take the lessons of the last two years and figure out what we're going to do moving forward to be resilient to be uh, more efficient and more responsive to students k-12 on the other hand just basically uh, look like a like a bug that's gone on its back and is kind of thrashing around. I mean, most school districts, especially the large ones, um, just did a terrible job. And it's only because the metrics of education are so bad that it's really not hitting us in the face of just how much we failed kids in K-12 over the past two years and how little they learned. Um, to the degree they learned anything, it is simply a statement that K-12 is teaching nothing. Um, but I don't believe K-12 is teaching nothing. I think we're just not paying enough attention to uh, to the scope of the problem. I had a superintendent from one of the large districts, and I volunteered. I said, look, and I work with all these tech companies, and we have all these uh, uh, tools that we use for higher ed. All of us are delighted to just give it to you to help you through this. This is when we thought it was like a two month problem. Right. Um, you know, and, and let's, you know, and I, 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 they're all on the phone. Let's go and solve this. And he says, oh, we don't need any of that. We have a 1970s era satellite system. We can beam fourth grade right onto the TV sets. That was his idea. That was, that was how he was going to deal with the pandemic. And uh, we don't need teachers. We just, you just need to watch like Sesame street. And, and we all just got off saying, okay, we're, we're done here. Like there's, there's no one at the other end of the line. Yeah. No, I mean, uh, I, I have to say one of the things I was most pleasantly surprised at this term was because of this latest class of students that came that had lost much of their junior and senior years on top of all of the, the stress of COVID. I just thought this past you know the the term we're in now and 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 the fall were going to be so so challenging for the, the all of those readiness regions and actually we just we just got back our data and had our best fall to spring retention in 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 years and so it's just a testament i think to how well the the faculty and staff have adapted to this world. It's it's also, I think, the fact that students are they're desperate to be out of the house. And, they're and, so happy to be yeah, on your campus, even even with masks and other things. You know, being yeah. able to have something approaching a, a normal. So I look, and, and Noodle is a B Corp, and I think I think the primacy of your social mission and your and 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 a clear north star are important. The the flexibility of your partner and the desire for improvement, you know. And there's there's all sorts of reasons. I mean, sometimes uh, the inertia of, of of the education space is well meant. You know, it is it is and and uh, and useful that there are a bunch of crazy ideas. Common Core was one of them that were resisted because they were terrible ideas. And untested, and it turns out uh, ineffective. Um, resisting change isn't always terrible, but um, the ability of an organization to look around, how schools look at each other, and oh, you're trying this, you're going to send kids home for Thanksgiving and not come back till January because they're all going to come back infected. Like, and you watch ideas kind of, kind of very quickly propagating through higher ed, and that's 
why we can solve the birth dearth. It's why we can fix college admissions. Because ultimately, if you've got a couple people willing to lead, there are a bunch of other people who are paying close attention and absolutely willing to be a fast follower. And and it's a highly imperfect market, but it is a market, right? So you, 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 you've got ideas that disseminate because some grow and it's a great market. Higher yep. ed is still the fifth largest service export in the U.S. It is the finest uh, post-secondary system in the in the in the world, and uh, you know we we are all self-critical, but but overall, U.S. higher ed is doing a fine job. And if there's one problem we need to solve, it is the cost problem. Part of that is perception. As I said, we're talking about sticker price, which is ridiculous, but part of it is real and there are ways of getting more efficient. And if we, if we can just step back a little bit, if we can pull back net tuition by a quarter, right? And just, just that much, I I think every other metric is good, including even at the kind of tuition people are paying, uh, uh, the return on that, on that education. Yeah. And as you say, even if it's not reducing it, but just slowing the growth and making it more transparent to people that in, in many, many cases, it's very manageable, right? If, if Particularly with some of these new ways of finance. David, we can do so much better than slowing the growth. There, I'll just give a bunch of examples. The use of the campus in the summer, you know, what's your two, what's your revenue in the summer Versus in the spring, is it even ten percent of 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 spring revenue? It's it's not it's heavily used, but it's not ten percent of revenue. Right. It, so we have so, a we have a big day camp that we use. So. Yep. So we're using our our whole infrastructure to run a day camp, whereas, for instance, at Dartmouth, they're using it three semesters a year, and they've been doing it successfully for decades, and. Mm-hmm. You know, all of a sudden, every school has thirty-three percent more capacity. Just that alone, and um, and then the question, of course, is okay. Well, if we had all this capacity, could we fill it? And the answer is, of course, you can. And how we're thoughtful about how we market our schools and how we price them. You know, if if you had the desire to pull in a class that was 50% larger, knowing that that increase could help you lower net tuition, that and some improvements in, in, in streamlining admin so that it didn't come with uh, uh, a tremendous extra cost other than, other than obviously a teaching cost and faculty, you know, th- that increase could lower your net tuition by a third. Okay, if you could lower your net tuition by a third, could you fill those seats? If the student's willing to spend more time in the summer as opposed to spring and fall, and you said doing that got you a $5,000 scholarship every year, now could you fill the seats? Again, with students every bit as qualified as your current students. Like, there are a dozen things being done. The uh, co-op program at Northeastern, right, is not just about getting kids a great education in the real world. It's about using the campus more, uh, more efficiently. Yeah. Couldn't agree more. I think what they and Drexel do is, is, is a huge win-win in terms of giving students 
really valuable hands-on real-world learning and leadership experience and adding to the capacity of the campuses, right? We're experimenting at Noodle with some some really interesting ways to um, not only to help schools lower their costs, but at the same time, and again, without touching the core of what makes a, a college or university great, which is the faculty and the student faculty engagement. If anything, you want to give better support to that. Um, but, um, but having other people pay for it, you know, our hospital systems, you know, anxious for new nurses, uh, um, able to up the amount of money they'll pay in terms of, uh, tuition or tuition reimbursement, uh, or, uh, loan forgiveness. Um, how can we partner better with the corporate side, um, for students in in high demand uh, areas like data science, computer science, nursing, teaching. Yeah. Oh, I, I think it's it's a wonderful opportunity. We're talking, you know, Pittsburgh. It's dominated by two big, large healthcare systems, and they're 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 with the great resignation. They're hemorrhaging talent right now, um, and so trying to think about this idea. I, I love the ability to think. Could could we tell any prospective nursing student or PA, you know. You, you come here, you're going to get a great degree, and if you stay with this employer for three years, they'll pay for your whole education. Right. So crafting that in scalable ways is the role of people like Noodle. Like it, 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 there are a lot of moving parts. Things, you know, what Apple taught us is things can be complex on the outside or they can be complex on the inside and simple on the outside. And the second way is much better. Like... If you have smart people and smart systems, you can you can internalize complexity and present to a student a simple, clear path that um, you know that is that is uh, both transparent and and powerful. Yeah. Power of good design. Yes, John. Th- thank you so much for sharing your wisdom and innovative ideas. I wish you best of luck with this, uh, uh, what sounds like, in addition to Noodle, a really, really exciting and important new venture on on admissions. We'll, we'll stay tuned for an announcement in the coming months and uh, really look forward to following your progress with that. Awesome. Well, it was great seeing you and speaking with you, David. And uh, thank you. Thank you for a great conversation.